0: Sixth chapter. We're going to read together the first eight verses. And if you're with us this morning in able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word as we read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne, the edges of his robe filling the temple. Winged creatures were stationed around him. Each had six wings. With two, they veiled their faces, with two, their feet, and with two, they flew about. They shouted to each other saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. The doorframe shook at the sound of their shouting and the house was filled with smoke. I said, mourn for me. I'm ruined. I'm a man with unclean lips and I live among people with unclean lips. Yet I've seen the King, the Lord of heavenly forces. Then one of the winged creatures flew to me, holding a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is removed. Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, whom should I send and who will go for us? I said, I'm here, send me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you've been following along uh, this year as we've been doing the story that changes everything, uh, yesterday was actually a really important day in that it was day 183, which if you're good at math means we're halfway through the year. Um, It's all down here from here. here. We got through all the hard parts and now uh, we get into Isaiah. Um, This week we actually read Song of Songs. I'm not preaching on it because I get embarrassed just reading it. It was so funny trying to do the podcast the three days on Song of Songs because my wife was uh, was cracking up in the the, in the room next door. Yeah, I'm just going to leave that there. Um, So, uh, but but today we we find ourselves in the Book of Isaiah. We're actually going to be in the Book of Isaiah for four Sundays, in part um, because the Book of Isaiah is the longest book in the Bible, but also because. There's so much that I think is theologically formative and important about the book of Isaiah. Let me get nerdy with you for just a a little bit and talk with you about Isaiah itself and and its uniqueness. Um, The book of Isaiah, the the very first verse of the book, positions, um, positions Isaiah in a particular period of time. In fact, if you want to look at it, it says that, That Isaiah came during the time of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The text that we just read from Isaiah 6, the call of Isaiah begins with the death of Uzziah in the the year that King Uzziah died. Um, We know because of that historical period or the, the sighting of those four kings that most of Isaiah then is going to focus on Jerusalem and on the people of Judah, the southern tribe. And that these four kings largely lived in the 8th century B.C. Um, Hezekiah makes it into the 7th century. But that Uzziah gets mentioned in chapter 6, but not much else. And then Jotham's not mentioned at all other than that first verse. But the, the majority of the first 39 chapters are going to be focused on those two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah. The death of Uzziah was really significant. And the 8th century was really problematic for Israel and for Judah. It's in the 8th century that the nation of Assyria, the empire, rises up and begins to attack that territory and eventually conquers those 10 tribes, the tribes of Ephraim or Israel. And they're essentially utterly wiped out, but they threaten Jerusalem as well. And because of their threat to Jerusalem, then Isaiah is going to speak to the kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, who faced that threat. And Ahaz is going to embody all the bad ways of responding to that crisis. And Hezekiah, in many ways, is going to embody what God's people look like at their faithful best, responding to that, that turmoil But the life of Isaiah is primarily taken up with this this problem. Uzziah, who was a king that had incredible stability, as soon as he died, it was like something changed. Threats arose, and it seemed like the world got turned upside down. And Isaiah then speaks into those moments where everything just doesn't quite feel right for God's people. But the odd thing about the book of Isaiah is then it goes on, and in chapters 40 through 66, it seems to begin to talk about different time periods. In fact, it seems to reference things like ultimately another empire, Babylon, coming and swallowing up Judah and taking them into exile. And then even further later, begins to talk about what does it look like when they move back into Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the city. Now, here's the problem. Those things take place in the 6th century. So if you're still with me, Isaiah lived in the 8th century, but is also... The book includes things in the 6th century. So the question is, how did that happen? What's going on there? And one of the theories, and probably the one that has lasted most in Christian history, is that Isaiah lived during the 8th century, wrote about that, but then God gave him special graces to kind of think about the future and wrote things that later Israel reads and goes, oh, this is really good, this is really important. About 200 years ago, in the 18th and the 19th century century, Biblical scholars began not just with Isaiah, but with really the Bible in general, began to do kind of deeper, what we might call today critical scholarship, especially trying to place books in their historical context. In the New Testament, that would mean when we read a book like Ephesians, we probably should know some of the things that were going on in Ephesus, or when we read Corinthians, what was going on in Corinth, or even... When we think about the New Testament, it's odd to, to realize that the epistles actually were written before the Gospels, even though we read the Gospels first, right? And, and so critical scholarship began begin to ask this question, what is the context into which Isaiah was writing? And a theory developed that's been fairly popular for about 200 years now, and that is that the original Isaiah wrote major portions of Isaiah 1 through 39 during that 8th century. But then later, in the 6th century, new voices, prophetic voices come along that get added to that book who address the time period of the threat of Babylon and Babylon swallowing them up. And then later, more prophetic voices are added that speak into the context of what does it mean to rebuild our life? That theory is so popular, in fact, and I know this is a little nerdy, but even when you buy commentaries of Isaiah now, you have to buy Isaiah 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66, And sometimes they're even referred by scholars as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Isaiah now. That's not that important. But what is really important this morning is actually a third level, which is a scribe or group of scribes, somebody inspired by God much later in Judah and Israel's history, who took all of those pieces then and wove them together into a theological whole. That person or person, they are unnamed for us across Jewish and Christian history. But that inspired one who takes the time of Isaiah, who takes that latter time, who weaves all of these writings into this amazing theological whole. And here's what's so powerful then about the book of Isaiah. That the book of Isaiah then reads not only what God has done in the past, and begins to reimagine the significance of what God has done in the past, but then speaks into various presents, whether that's the threat of Assyria or the threat of Babylon, or now the attempt to try to rebuild a life after all that devastation has happened. But it also gets woven together then to speak into a future and an expectation of if this is how God has worked in the past and how God is working now, then here are the hopes that shape how we might think about God acting in the future. Are you with me? And so Isaiah is such an important book, especially for Holy Week. Because so much of what we're going to do this week, so much of what we sing, so many of the ways that we think and write and worship Jesus is shaped in the language and the imagination of Isaiah. So it's right that we take four weeks to mess around with Isaiah. And it's important for me, at least, that you understand a little bit of the richness of this book and why it's so significant. But as we think about this text that is familiar to many of us, this call of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, This text embodies to me a handful of things that are so important about the theological vision of Isaiah. And as we enter this Holy Week together, let me talk to you about just a handful of those ways that Isaiah begins to help us shape, begin to imagine what God has done in the past, but also begin to imagine what God is doing, in particular in Christ and even in our own moment. Now, I want to say I struggled this week because the things I'm going to share with you to me are like, duh, I talk about these every week. And so if they're new to you, why haven't you been listening? Um, Just kidding. But they're kind of things I I hope that you kind of know. But what's interesting for me as I thought through them is that even though I think we probably know these things and might even be able to pass the test on these things, they still are such struggles for us in our imagination and in our faith. One of the things that's really critical for Isaiah is this. Our worship matters. Our worship matters. But here's what matters most in our worship. The kind of people that we are becoming. So Isaiah chapter 6, that text that we read, is oftentimes used by worship nerds like Pastor Brent as a way of thinking about the rhythms of worship. Many people see in Isaiah 6 a kind of pattern for worship in this way. Isaiah, in a sense, gets called into God's presence. So this morning, as Pastor Brent led us in that call, or as our, our children led us this morning, in that call to worship, right? Right that you came this morning, I hope, not just because it's your habit or because this is just kind of what you do, but this genuine sense of being called by God to come and to gather with God's people, with with Christ in the very center, and that we are shaped by that. And so Isaiah gets called into God's presence, but then Isaiah brings, there's, there's worship going on all around Isaiah. The throne room is filled with all sorts of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's praise. And so we come and offer our praise. We give our offerings. We even bring our burdens to the Lord. And we give, but we also receive the power of God's presence that is transformative and the power of God's word that is transformative. And then in just a few moments, then we're sent back into the world. Who will go? Isaiah says, I'll go. Okay, great. Go, right? Go. And this pattern of of being called, of giving, of receiving, of being sent, that is what worship is largely about. But here's the way Isaiah thinks about worship. If you do those things, but something hasn't changed you, it doesn't matter. In the first chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah will say, this is my paraphrase, I love Jerusalem. Jerusalem so cool. I love the temple, all these religious practices. But I fear this is how God feels about him. I am so tired of your sacrifices. Oh, these celebrations, new moons and convocations and all these rituals that you do. Ah, la, 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 I am not listening. I'm so tired of them because they have become practices for you that do not change you. So you don't do justice. You don't love mercy. You don't plead for the widow and the orphan. You do all these things, but you're still not a reflection of who I want you to be in the world. I think that message is still so unbelievably relevant for 21st century people of God. And I think that happens for us in a couple of ways. There's a fullness, a robustness of worship that sometimes we... We miss various aspects of. I'm I'm saying this not because I want you to be, or let me say it this way. I'm not trying to guilt you into coming to church this week. But if I were. uh, (laughs) If you skip from today till next Sunday, you're going to miss two really important aspects of worship this week, and that is the confession of our sin. That Monday, Thursday is about inviting us to love each other, but Good Friday... Leaving in darkness is a recognition of the sin that still clings so closely. And if you just skip from this week to that week, you miss that opportunity to kind of wrestle with that, to confess that. For many of us, we, we get kind of focused on one aspect of worship over another. It, I've said this to you before, but, but I love having grown up in this tradition and we use the altar... But I think as a young person, so often the only way we knew how to end the service was with an altar call. And and let me say, part of my generation resisting that, sometimes we then now fail to invite people to come and make decisions because decisions are important and commitments are important. But growing up, because this was basically the only response we had, I think part of me grew up thinking my whole spiritual life depends upon my commitment. And that if I'm having trouble in my walk with Christ, it's because I'm not working at it hard enough. And I need to commit more. And this time I mean it, right? And please hear me, decisions matter. But this morning as we end the service, we'll end around a table which invites us all to come and to say, listen, this grace that is extended to you also is a reminder of our sin, but it's also an invitation to come and to receive Not necessarily to commit more or to mean it this time, but to accept that grace that's given to us and take that into ourselves and be shaped by it. Are you with me? I think in our day and age, we have equated worship with music. And I love the singing that we did today. And choir was beautiful. And you're singing and the kids marching in was great. But so often we think about worship as emotional experiences tied to worship. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. We are emotional beings. Hopefully worship should grab us. You should cry more often than you do. I'm a good role model. (laughs) Emotions are a part of who we are. But if all worship ever does is us go from place to place looking to be moved and entertained, we will never be changed. And so Isaiah invites us to imagine worship something ultimately that is judged by whether it has made us reflections of Christ. And therefore, sometimes worship should make us uncomfortable and invite us to do some things we wouldn't normally do and draw us into deeper ways of walking with God. That's why during this Holy Week, an important moment is when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, He cleanses the temple Not because sacrifices aren't good or worship at the temple is somehow bad, but because the worship at the temple was not making the people what it ought to be and it was turning the leaders into something that was not a reflection of who Christ is. And that's so important. Another important aspect of this text and of Isaiah as a whole is our understanding of holiness. Holiness without question is the otherness of God. When, When Isaiah experiences God, he recognizes God is so other than him. There is there's a huge gulf between Isaiah and between God, and that gulf is the holiness of God. And because of that, Isaiah recognizes, in fact, panics, says kind of pity me, pray for me, I'm in trouble. Because in the vision, he winds up in the place he should not be. He's a prophet, and no offense to you prophets, but we priests, we get to go in occasionally when we've been ritually purified. The rest of you will tell you what it was like. Because he finds himself in the place of holiness and he is not ritually prepared, morally prepared. He realizes I have unclean lips and look at all these people I hang out with, super unclean lips, right? Really bad. Morally impure people. And yet in that moment where he realizes all of the ways of thinking about holiness that are about separateness, about the exclusion of things that are broken and evil and wicked. And let me say really quickly, that is a part of holiness. Because what I'm about to say, I do think there's a generation of us who grew up thinking we were so shaped by legalism that now we just let anything into our lives. So there is an aspect of that that is important. But in Isaiah's imagination, if that's all you know of holiness, then you've missed it. Because holiness is that the the, the seraphim grabs the coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips, and he's transformed. His guilt is is taken away. His sin is forgiven. The prophetic imagination is that holiness is not something we guard, something we hide from. Holiness is something that empowers us to be agents of transformation in the world. Ezekiel, we'll get to him. He has this wonderful vision where the temple starts leaking and there's water flowing out from underneath the door of the temple. But then the more it goes, the deeper it gets and the more it flows until it finally gets to the Dead Sea and everything is changed and brought to life. This is so important because then when Jesus arrives on the scene, Jesus goes to people and places of impurity without concern that they would contaminate him. But every time he touches the unclean, they are changed. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against a people who have been transformed by Christ. And in the prophetic imagination of Isaiah, then holiness is not just in a sense, a form of defense against the world, but it is the very power of God in us that brings us into the world as agents of God's transformation. That was really good, by the way. And out of that, then, then as holiness breaks out of the temple, then kind of what does that look like? And here is something so important for Isaiah. For Isaiah, that presence, that being sent into the world, that presence almost always looks like vulnerable, suffering love. So we'll get to all these texts that we describe as the suffering servant texts. In part, I think it's Isaiah or the prophetic folks attached to Isaiah, beginning to reimagine, man, we have been through so much. And everything we've been through, some of that was just really awful And I think it's important for us to recognize not all suffering is redemptive suffering. But there are pieces of it, Isaiah imagines, where God was doing something in them, changing them, and not just changing them, but changing their heart to the people around them. And that somehow, by the stripes that Judah has experienced, they have been healed. And the imagination is so shaping that then we begin to think of them as as what we would call messianic expectations. What do we expect God to do in the future? And this is why Holy Week is so important, because Jesus arrives on the scene and why Palm Sunday is so important, because we see in Jesus the Spirit of God at work and the people are ready for somebody to come and deliver them. What they are ready for is a conquering culture warrior, if you will who will come and defeat all of their enemies in the name of God Almighty. And their disappointment comes that by the end of the week, they get not a conquering culture warrior, but they get a suffering servant who redeems the world through self-giving love. It's Isaiah that flips all that on on its head. And I I may have lost you there, but, but, but let me say it this way. I know that there are significant issues that face us as God's people in the world today. And I know there are tensions and rightly concerns about things like religious liberty and the widely changing culture. And I know for some of you, actually not for many of you, because if you were disappointed in this, you probably left already. I know for some of you, there's a disappointment that we as a church aren't better at kind of fueling you to go out and to be culture warriors. And, And please hear me say this. There's a truthfulness that has to be true about our lives and about the way we live our lives, unashamedly. But the imagination of Isaiah is that we are sent out of the temple to be agents of transformation, primarily not through the conquest of our enemy, but through going to places of darkness with transforming love. And to stand with those who hurt and to be instruments of transformation. And I'll be careful here. The problem when we think we still need a culture warrior is we end up living into Holy Week over and over again. And we're offered the option between Jesus and Barabbas and we keep picking Barabbas. And in the imagination of Isaiah, then, is this invitation to be participants in this transforming work of God in the world. And it ends with this amazing invitation. God is working to redeem all things. But here is that's the mystery for Isaiah. He's not going to do it without us. Now, please hear this. I don't think that depends on you, so get over yourself. I'm mainly speaking to myself here. Get over myself. God will accomplish God's purposes. I need to get over, and probably you too, our various messianic complexes. But the mystery of the Spirit of God is that when Isaiah is transformed and God is ready to work and to send a message out of transformation and reconciliation, as we'll see next week, a message of peace and new creation. He asks this question, who will go for me? And Isaiah, and it's so important, Isaiah, who is unworthy, really unclean lips, not fully prepared, says, I'll go. Here am I. Send me. We still struggle with the idea that God is at work in the world. And thank goodness, there's a handful of pastors to do his work in the world. I'm so grateful for missionaries, right? I love this text. I've, this is a great missionary text, and it's a great call, uh, text for calling people to missions. But I think there's a part of us that thinks missions is the work of a few people who then are called to go somewhere else. And thanks be to God, they do that. And I am really thankful for them, and I'm thankful that we can support them. But the vision of Isaiah is not that there's just a handful of special people who get to do God's work while everybody else cheers. The vision of Isaiah is this vision that says God is at work in the world. You want to go? You want to come? You who feel somewhat unworthy and ungifted, you're the exact kind of candidate God is looking for. You want to go? You want to participate? And finally, the reason that's so important is because this week, as we go through Holy Week, again and again, rightly, we will celebrate the cross and what Christ did on the cross, and we will sing amazing hymns about what Christ did on the cross. But every time we gather to celebrate that, we are also reminded that Christ said to us, if you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross and follow me. For if you want to find your life, you'll lose it for my sake, for the sake of the gospel. And so as we enter this week together, as we enter the several, next several weeks of Easter and we think through Isaiah, this profound, amazing, reimaginative book. It, it reminds us worship matters. But, but if you're here just to kind of sign off on God's heavenly roll sheet, um, or just out of habit, or even to f- feed certain aspects of your own desire, it doesn't really matter. For worship that counts is a worship that changes us to be who Christ called us to be. And we are called to be holy, and that means we got to exclude a few things, but it also means that we are not afraid to go into the world empowered to be God's instrument of transformation, even into some really dark places. And as we go, we go not in conquest, but in self-giving love. The love that Pastor Brett read to us today from Philippians. A love that even though it had everything to claim, was willing to empty itself for the sake of the transformation of of the other. And if you're listening this morning and you think, I'm so glad my neighbor's doing that, you missed the sermon. Because Isaiah is always going to grab you. (laughs) Say, you want to go? You want in? And the response today is, here am I, send me. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. Almighty God, we thank you today for your steadfast love and mercy, for your grace, your sacrificial love that we will see again and again this week in, in the person of Jesus. As we gather around this table today, we pray that you would make this an act of worship not simply a routine that we go through on the first Sunday of every month, but a means of grace, an act of worship that would make us what we eat today, the body of Christ for the sake of the world. Make us holy today, not so that we can kind of hide and be safe, but that we can be empowered to be the agents of your transforming grace and love in the world. And I pray that this would not be something that we give to others, but may it be a call like Isaiah that we fill at the deepest part of our being. And so claim us in this meal today. Here we are. Use us. Send us, we pray. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite those who are going to help me serve this morning to come. If you're a guest with us today, you do not need to be a member of the church to participate today. You just need to know that you need God's grace. And so if you would hold the elements, we will pray a prayer of blessing in just a moment and partake of the meal together. Blessing together is for sure.
1: Faithfulness what I long for, faithfulness is what I need, faithfulness is what you want. Righteousness is what I long for, righteousness is what I need, righteousness is what you it all my life in
0: Would you hold the elements out in front of you let me pray prayer blessing god we hold in our hands very common things bread and cup we pray that you would make them be a sacrament a means of grace for us today make us what we eat today call us send us form us to be the body of christ for the sake of the world the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He lifted it, he gave thanks and broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us take and eat today in remembrance of him. After supper was over, he took the cup, he blessed it. So this is my blood, which is poured out for you to preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take and drink in remembrance of Him. May it be so. Make us the body of Christ. We pray. God's people said, "Amen." Would you stand with me?
1: I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings, I'll hold fast to what is true. And if the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Because oh, Cause death is just the doorway. We know to resurrection life. And if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. When you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing, my song will be the same. the
0: this benediction and this sending this morning. And may the God of peace himself, may he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called Isaiah is calling you. And he is faithful. And he will finish his work in us. And God's people said, amen, go in his peace.